Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are two of my Black classmates, John Woodford from Ann Arbor and Jerry Secundi from Pasadena. I'm also joined by classmates George Allen from Los Angeles, Mason Morford from Freeport, Maine, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Alden Biscow from San Mateo, and Nick Bancroft from Medfield, Massachusetts. We all have a lot to say and a lot of people we want to talk to before we leave the planet. This episode is about righting some of the wrongs and correcting some of the misconceptions about ancient African history. And we will hear about the real father of African history and study, William Leo Hansberry. Our guest is Deborah Hurd, a PhD candidate in anthropology specializing in Nubian archaeology at the University of Chicago. Hi, so I'm Deborah. I am currently in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I came here a little over a year ago to teach um, in the Department of Black Studies with a one-year teaching appointment, and then COVID happened. And uh, instead of trying to move back to Chicago during a pandemic, I decided to stay here for another year. Um, so that's that's why I'm still in Omaha. Um, so we will be talking about, first of all, we'll start off talking about William Leo Hansberry. Um, so the, the presentation that I did back in April uh, discussed the kind of the roots of Black engagement with ancient Nubia, going back to um, the thinkers of the late 18th and early 19th century. So we were talking about people such as Martin Delaney, um, Alexander Crummel, but then when we move into the, uh, the, the, the 20th century, um, we're looking at people like, first of all, W.B. Du Bois. So we have two Harvard connections uh, in, this, in this lecture. Uh, but before we get to talking about Du Bois, William Leo Hansberry, um, he was born in 1894 in, in Mississippi. Um, his father had been a professor at Alcorn State, which is a HBCU. And two years later, his brother Carl was born. Now Carl uh, is the father or becomes the father of Lorraine Hansberry. So this is a very um, notable family. But um, by the time William turns three, his father has passed away. So they grow up, um, you know, in the household with a, with a single mother. But she had this, this, this um, determination that both her sons would be educated because their father had been educated. So there was this tradition, you know, in the family. So she made sure that her sons, you know, received an education. When, her, when the father passed, he left this, this library at home. So his sons grew up reading uh, the classics, you know, Greek and Roman classics. But William always felt that there was something more. 
that he didn't see himself in these classics. He, he's reading this history, but he says, you know, African people had to have had a history, but everywhere he turned, people were saying, no, there, there, there is no history for Africa. So he goes to um, high school. He, he spends a little time in, in Tennessee. Um, I, don't, I don't know what school I'd be interested to know, um, but he leaves there and goes to old Atlanta University. So back then, um, a lot of the, the HBCUs had finishing schools because the students that came weren't all ready to, to start college work. Uh, but this was his senior year. So he was, he was a high school senior anyway. So he went there to finish, finish uh, his senior year and stayed on um, as a freshman. Uh, and one, one of the things that's interesting, so uh, Kwame Alfred did a dissertation on William Leo Hansberry, so he's the source of a lot of information. Uh, but during his freshman year at, at Old Atlanta University, he was on the debate team. And one of, the, one of his teammates was um, Walter White. And Walter White becomes the president of the NAACP, you know, some years later. So this is, you know, the quality of students that they had at, at uh, Atlanta University. Uh, but after his freshman year, he goes um, to Mississippi to work during the summer. And he has various jobs, but one of them uh, is like at a spa or something. So they receive materials in uh, reading materials. And he's an avid reader. So one of the things that this that they receive is the Crisis magazine, which Du Bois is, is editing at the time. And one of the uh, regular features in the Crisis was what you should be reading or what's new that's coming out. So one of the things that was advertised that he saw was Du Bois's The Negro. And so he's reading it. He reads the, 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 you know, the ad and he says, wow, this looks really interesting. So he orders the book and just literally devours the book. And, you know, years later, he says that, that he credits Du Bois with starting him out on his, his lifelong trajectory of what it is that he's going to be doing the rest of his life. But uh, The Negro basically was Du Bois's first effort to try to create a narrative history, um, you know, for African people starting at the earliest period and, and, and continuing on. So at the end of the book, he gives a, a list of sources and, you know, he, he tells, he encourages the readers, you know, to, to try to read some of these books. Well, William Leo Hansberry is like, I'm going to read every one of these books. And they're like over 100 books. And so he goes back to school the, for his sophomore year and he approaches one of the professors. He was like, you know, have you seen this book? This book is wonderful. And, and I need to read every book on here. And he says, well, you know, you're not gonna find most of those books here at Atlanta University. You know, the, the place that will probably have, have books would be, you know, like the Library of Congress or Harvard. So he's thinking, he's telling him something that he can do in the future. William withdraws from school and goes to Harvard immediately <laughs> to track down these books. You know, so it's, the school year hasn't even really started yet. He's there like a couple of days and he withdraws and goes to Harvard. He hasn't applied to Harvard. He just shows up like, hey, I'm here. Um, so, you know, so that, that's the kind of driving determination that he had. He just showed up and, and so he starts taking classes. Uh, but he's juggling, uh, you know, doing the coursework, the required coursework 
as opposed to reading all these books that Du Bois has said you should be reading if you want to know this information. So he, they, he's doing that juggle for a while. Um, but that's what really gets him started. Um, that, that's really his starting point. Uh, he moves on from there. Um, <clears throat> things that happen you know, in between. So World War I happens, he goes off um, and is in the war for a little while. He comes back. Um, then around 1920, so again, I did mention that, you know, it's his mother now. So the, the primary breadwinner in the family, which would have been the father, passed away when they were very, very young. So there's always this um, kind of financial instability, you know, going on throughout. So around 1920, um, he's having some, some, some financial difficulties and needs to work for a while. So um, Harvard gives him uh, his degree so that he can go and work. So he goes to, he, he gets a, a teaching position at Strait College in New Orleans. Um, Strait College eventually merges with another university and becomes Dillard University. Um, but at that time it was Strait College. So he goes there and this is where he begins to create his, um, his program of study for ancient African civilizations. And so he really, you know, begins the framework there. He's there for about a year. During that time, he's also lecturing around the South because he has this idea that he needs to, that one of the things that the students at HBCUs need to know is that they have a history and that that history has nothing to do with uh, enslavement, that there's a history that transcends enslavement. And so he wants that to be taught at all the HBCUs. So that's one of the things that's going on in his, his mind. And so he's going around giving lectures to different institutions and organizations. And um, this professor at Howard hears one of his lectures and he thinks, wow, he should be here at Howard teaching. And so he gets in, in, in contact with him, it's a spring arm. So the, the spring arm collection is named for him. So he contacts him. In the meantime, he's also being contacted by his old school Atlanta University. And the president is like, I will offer you the, now mind you, he, he just finished his bachelor's degree. I will offer you to be head of both the history department and the sociology department. So he's offered him two heads of you know departments full-time teacher position that comes along with uh having housing laundry you know having this laundry done all these perks <laughs> meanwhile howard is only offering him a part-time position that is not very well paid and uh so where does he go he he ends up at howard <laughs> <laughs> But he, he, again, it's that, that motivation and drive. So he goes to Howard because if he's in D.C., he has access to the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress, and then he'd get on the train and go to Harvard. So he always has, he's always thinking ahead. It's not just the immediate. Um, so he goes to Howard and, and in uh, 1922, he begins what will eventually become um, the first, real, the first program of African studies in this country. Um, so uh, Melville Herskovitz at Northwestern is credited with being the father of African studies. 
but actually it's William Leo Hansberry. It starts at Howard University under his tutelage. Um, but the thing is, uh, during his time at Howard, he's being fought by other faculty members. It's, 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 it's a really just bizarre thing that's going on throughout this, this, this whole uh, history. But um, Elaine Locke, who a lot of people know, you know, wrote The New Negro, um, was the person that was spearheading the effort to, to try to get him ousted from Howard. Really? And it seems like it was uh, a, a thing of professional jealousy. So within the first two years of him being at Howard, he's taught over 800 students. Can you imagine 800 students in two years? So students are just packing rooms. They're probably standing out in the hall trying to get this information because nobody else is teaching this. Um, I mean, you can't get this not, not even just limited to HBCUs, you can't get this anywhere else in the country because no one else thinks that Africa has a history. So he's creating all this primary research and delivering it to his students and to the public because uh, some of the, the uh, fraternities and sororities around uh, at the HBCUs and, and at some of the other white institutions as well, um, they have lecture series. So or fraternities have invited him to come and give a lecture on ancient African history. So this is this information is kind of slowly getting out, but the some of the faculty members at Howard, he's so forward-thinking that they don't get it. So they're like, he's teaching this stuff. Nobody knows about this. This is you know. So for them, it's like this is going to bring dishonor on our you know, on our university because, you know, he's teaching this stuff that nobody knows about. So they basically think he's making things up, you know, like he's this crackpot. And it's really, he's so far ahead of them that they can't even comprehend what it is that he's, he's teaching. Um, but yeah, so he's having to, to fight inside the university. Um, but then outside the university, he's at, he goes back to Harvard uh, around 1930 to begin work on his master's and then, you know, the PhD. And so he finishes, finishes his master's and they basically tell him, we don't have anyone that can supervise your dissertation. So Ernest Houdin was the uh, physical anthropologist. So it was in the anthropology department. And he, he, he wrote a couple of recommendations for him as he was trying to get grants and, and fellowships. But he basically said, you know, nobody in this country knows more about Africa than William Leo Hansberry. <laughs> and we have no one can, that can supervise a dissertation for him. So part of the tragedy in this is that um, he spends like the next 20 years, you know, trying to find someone uh, outside of the country that can supervise a dissertation for him. So he never gets the PhD. And, and I think that that's just really just a, a travesty because I compare that to Melville Herskovitz, who comes up at about the same time. Uh, Herskovitz is at Columbia. His supervisor is Franz Boas, who is an anthropologist, but he doesn't work in Africa. Uh, Herskovitz does his dissertation uh, using books. He doesn't go to Africa to do field work. His, his dissertation is on East African cattle culture. 
So he uses books that they have at Columbia and what they don't have at Columbia, he actually goes to uh, W.B. Du Bois's house to his personal library to, to get books. Uh, but he does a dissertation and, you know, he gets his PhD from Columbia and is considered an Africanist. Whereas William Leo Hansberry is like, we don't have anybody that can supervise him because he knows too much information. So you have that, that, um, that kind of dichotomy, but it's really, really, uh, I think a tragedy that 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 happened, you know, and, and nobody rectified that situation at any at any point in his life. Um, yeah, so he he basically set this kind of this standard. Um, what we see now, this disciplinary divide in African studies and ancient African studies, is a result of the way that. Um, the disciplines were kind of mutually exclusive in their, in their creation. So when um, Melville Herskovitz is, is you know, putting together the program of study at Northwestern, he gets funding, but there's no interest in ancient Africa. So ancient Africa is kind of seeded to um, Egyptology, you know, for, for ancient Egypt and uh, by extension Nubia, falls under that. And then, you know, there's this little piece, this, you know, archaeology, but they don't really concern themselves with that either. So you have African studies over here, you have Egyptology over here. All of this stuff is Af on the African continent, but there's no disciplinary connection. They're basically mutually exclusive. And the thing is that if you understand what William Leo Hansberry was offering and what he was trying to do, his program of study would take African studies from the beginning of human existence on the African continent. So his class back in the 1920s was teaching from the stone tool users all the way through to the modern day where he was, you know, in the, in the 1920s. So it was a holistic type of, of uh, curriculum, you know, that, that looked at Africa as a whole, as opposed to, you know, dividing it up into parts that have no connection with each other. So those are, are some of the things that, uh, that we, you know, think about with, uh, with uh, William Leo Hansberry. Deborah, let me, let me, if you wouldn't mind going back. So he goes up to Harvard, doesn't apply, starts taking classes and becomes a student. I mean, if I'd known that, hell, I wouldn't have applied either. I've just shown up. <laughs> so um, he, he did go to the, the, the registration office and like, I'm here. What do I need to do? So, uh, you know, I guess back then Harvard didn't have that, you know, big application process. Like we only have these number of spots. But yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Talk about chutzpah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> What was your path to uh, Nubia? Tell, tell us about that a bit. And, uh... Oh, wow. So the, my path is very circuitous. <laughs> um, so I will start out uh, after. So I ended up in New Orleans. And this is my New Orleans connection. Uh, I went to law school after I finished undergraduates at uh, Tennessee State University. Who's told me they were from Nashville? Who lives in Nashville? Yes, yes. Okay, so yes, I went to Tennessee State University, uh, got a degree in political science, 
went down to Tulane Law School, hated law, uh, <laughs> knew that that was not my chosen career, but I, I finished anyway. And I, um, I came back to Tennessee and I practiced for a few years. And then I enrolled at uh, Temple University to get a master's in um, African-American studies. So that's kind of where I get started. Um, so while I'm there, I also get a master's in anthropology. And so while I'm in the anthropology department, I'm thinking about, you know, what is it in anthropology that appeals to me? Uh, because I came from HBCU and most HBCUs do not have anthropology classes or anything related to anthropology. Um, so I decided that I wanted to try my hand at archeology. span so I said, you know, I've, I was always fascinated with all of the seeing digs and all these, you know, ancient things on television, you know, especially in Africa. But I was like, but I would never see anybody that looked like me in Africa digging. So how I think I might try that out. So I, I got into that. Um, then I applied to the University of Chicago. And so when, once I got to Chicago, I started thinking about um, I had no idea exactly where in Africa I wanted to excavate, but I figured I'm, I'm here at the University of Chicago. It has an Egyptology department. I should at least take a couple of classes just to, you know, say that I learned how to do a little bit of translation. And while we're actually taking, so once we get past, you know, the initial part of the grammar and you actually start translating, I read something about the Nubians. And I was like, the Nubians, the Nubians, they ruled Egypt, how come I don't know this? Why don't I know this information? And so that was like my trigger. So William Leo Hansberry had his, the new Negro. I mean, the Negro was his trigger. My reading about the Nubians and a translated text, that was my trigger. So I started uh, doing research on the Nubians just from that period alone. I started every class that I took, um, I would try to learn something or do something about Nubia from, from then on. So I studied the archeology span uh, for all phases, but I also continued taking classes in um, the Egyptian language, the different phases. So I ended up deciding that I wanted to do my research in the area of the Kushite period because that allowed me to use my translation skills as well as uh, the archeology. span so it combines both. But yeah, so that's kind of my circuitous route to Nubia. So Deborah, tell us a little bit about the Royal Women of Kush. Oh, the women are fascinating. So there's, I, I have to start out by saying that uh, because a lot of people are fascinated by the, the ruling queens, but that tradition of having these ruling queens goes back all the way to what would be the old kingdom in Egypt, because uh, they found a cache of execration figurines. So basically there are these little figurines that the Egyptians would write curses on, especially if they were being um, you know, harassed by an enemy. So they found these caches of all of these uh, Nubian tribes that had their names written on them with a curse and one of them actually referred to uh, a, a, rule, a ruling woman. So you have the, 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 the masculine, Heka, which means ruler, but then for one of them, you have Hekat, 
and a, the seated woman figure. So they actually had a, a, a woman that was ruling a Nubian tribe as far back as the old kingdom. Um, but one of the things that's so fascinating about the Nubian women, the Nubian royal women, is just the amount of, of um, they have power, but the amount of veneration that they have. So during the 25th dynasty, so that's the, the dynasty where the, the, the Kushite Nubians actually come in and rule uh, Egypt. You have um, these, these kings, especially starting uh, with Taharqa. So you have what they have called the uh, enthronement stela. So basically it's a, a, a stela. A stela is a, basically a stone tablet. And at the top part of it, you'll have the figure uh, a scene of the king being crowned by the god Amun. So Amun was the Egyptian supreme god. Uh, but in Nubia, he had a ram head. So he even had a different form when he was uh, in, in Nubia. But you have the, the god Amun crowning the king. And usually you have the goddess Mut behind uh, Amun. But then in front of the king, or right behind the king, you'll have the king's mother, which is something that you don't see in Egypt. So the king's mother is there with her title. So she is the daughter of a king. She's the sister of a king. And then she's the mother of the king. So she has these three titles. So um, some of uh, the, the Egyptologists and Nubiologists that have studied this have, um, kind of come to the conclusion, so there's a debate, is it, is power passed down matrilineally? You know, so is it being passed down through the mother or is it still patrilineal, but there's some significance to the mother having all these titles? And so it, it, it appears that, um, that these kings, they, they, they're tracing that affiliation through their mother. So you always have that mother and her, her lineage. But we also know that there is some male prior to them that was either the father or the brother that was the king. So there's, there's royal blood on both sides. But it, it seems that it's the, the mother's connection to the throne that qualifies her son to be in this pool of, of, of men that are being considered for king. So it's, uh, during the 25th dynasty, you'll see that it's not passed down from father to son. So you have a father, you have a son, and then you have a brother, and then it gets passed down to maybe the nephew. So it's still men in that line and they're all related, but it's not that direct line. So sometimes it passes collaterally as opposed to just passing directly. But the thing that they all have in common is that their mother has these three titles. And so, so we have the, the, the queen mother. So we call that, that role the queen mother. So you have that. Um, but you also have these women, the daughters of the king, the princess, basically. And so we have some of them becoming priestesses in the temple in Egypt. So the first king, um, Pianchi, his, it is believed that it's his sister gets presented to the, the temple at uh, Thebes to be the God's wife. 
So during the around the 2021st dynasty, and this 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 office had existed before, uh, but it didn't have the same type of power. But because of the things that are going on during the the um, the intermediate period, the 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 uh, priests of Amun have a lot of power because people have keep making donations to the temple. Uh, the temple is exempt from taxation. Even the king makes donations to the temple. The temple has uh, can own land. It has herds of cattle. So actually the temples in Egypt are richer than the king. And so when you go into this intermediate period, the kings are getting worried because the, the priests have now, during the intermediate period, they have raised themselves up as kings as well. So you have competing kingships. So you have some people that are claiming to be king because you know, they're royal blood. And then you have these priests who are like, no, actually we're the kings of Egypt. Uh, so it's, once the, the kingdom is uh, being brought back together, one of the ways to kind of cut down the authority of the priests um, and I think it's in the tw 22nd, 23rd dynasty, the king presents his daughter to be the God's wife of Bamun. So she's the priestess. So some of the authority and power over resources that the high priest had is now vested in the God's wife. So the king feels like if his, if his daughter has control over this, that he doesn't have anything really to worry about about you know, the priests trying to raise themselves up as kings. So uh, that God's wife position is still in existence uh, when the, the Nubian kings come up from, from Nubia. And so the first king presents his daughter to be the next reigning God's wife. So we have um, two Kushite princesses that become God's wives of Amun in, uh, in Egypt. And so that, that uh, office is one that's held until the death of the reigning God's wife. And then the next one, whoever's presented, succeeds and becomes the next God's wife. So we had, uh, so there were two Kushites. There was actually a third, but there was some kind of arrangement uh, because the Kushites were no longer in control of Egypt by the time, um, actually during the reign of the second God's wife. But um, she was allowed to finish her term until you know she passed away but then there was some kind of arrangement for that third one. Uh, so she never got to reign. Okay, so you have the queen mothers, you have these princess, priestess princesses, and then later in the Meroitic period, you have reigning queens. So there are at least five queens of, of, of Cush that actually ruled the kingdom. Um, and during the Roman period, uh, I think uh, Strabo, writes about the uh, one-eyed queen. So these queens are, are reigning by the time you have Roman rule in Egypt. And the Romans start moving down into Nubia trying to take part of, of, of Lord Nubia. And they run afoul of the, the queens that are sitting on the throne. So the thing about these queens, they don't just send troops into battle. And that's what Strabo writes about. These queens actually ride into battle with their troops. So he describes, uh, and the, the queen that he's talking about is a Monoranus. Uh, so she's a one-eyed, masculine-looking woman. <laughs> uh, 
in, 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 you know, riding with her troops to fight, you know, the Romans. Uh, and it's really interesting because so later writers talk about, uh, you know, the queens, it gets exaggerated. So they're saying they always ruled Nubia. No, that's not true. They didn't always rule Egypt, Nubia, but they did rule for a time. Uh, but then there's even one legend where a queen <clears throat> is in battle. She gets shot in the breast with an arrow. She pulls out the arrow. She, you know, uh, swipes off her breast and she keeps fighting. And they're like, okay, that is just purely outrageous because she could just die from blood loss, <laughs> having just cut off her breast in the middle of battle. But, uh, but if you think about it though, a lot of times when you have these, you know, these legends, there is a kernel of truth. So most likely that story goes back to Amanarena's with the eye, she may have damaged, gotten her eye may have been damaged in battle, you know. So um, yeah, so we have these these ruling queens. Um, the other thing about it is that they're depicted uh, in on Meroitic temples and and inscriptions as very full figured women. Uh, and when I mean full figured, I mean they're big, <laughs> um, big rounded, you know but they're fierce. So you can tell, you know, that they, it, it's not, a, um, it's a different aesthetic. Uh, so we've had, I, I've had discussions with some, some people they are like, want to describe them as fat. And I said, no, no, they, they weren't fat because that's, that's kind of taken as derogatory, you know, that, oh, they're just big and obese. No, these women were showing that they were being, they were curvaceous and voluptuous. Like, I am strong, uh, you know, I'm fierce. So when you see them, they're like, uh, have the uh, enemy by the hair with one hand and holding the sword, getting ready to strike with the other hand. Uh, but they're always dressed immaculately too. So that's one of the things <laughs> that you notice uh, because, you know, in Egypt, uh, when Hatshepsut becomes, decides that she's going to be Pharaoh, she sometimes depicts herself with a false beard like a man. Sometimes she uses the male pronoun to talk about herself. But in, in Meroe, those queens are never depicted as masculine. You know, so even when they're shown in battle scenes, they're, they're in dress, like they're wearing a long dress with and they've got their jewelry on and their nails are done. And when I mean nails done, they have like these long dagger nails and you can see them like <laughs> coming off their fingers. So they're still women, you know? So it shows that there's a different mindset in Nubia that a woman being in power is something that's not foreign and it's not something that they had to wrestle with. They, they were fine with that. So let me ask you that all of this is part of, is it part of the, the redefinition or redefining Nubia's place in the world history or how does, how does, how does that work? I mean, there was no history before that. What, what's your sense? Yes. Yeah, so when, when Egyptologists uh, started digging in Nubia, uh, initially they looked at Nubia as a degraded copy that the, the Nubians were just trying to copy Egyptian culture. Um, 
and they're really, they had no culture of their own. They had no history of their own. They only existed as uh, a place of resources for the Egyptians. So a lot of the Nubian history, early history that was written by Egyptologists, they were just looking at the ways in which Nubia served Egypt. Um, when the Aswan High Dam was built in the late 1960s and, and they began filling up the reservoir in the early 70s, um, that, that was the call. And you all probably remember the UNESCO campaign where all of these groups came and they, uh, you know, that's where the uh, Temple of, uh, of Abu Simbel was physically like chiseled out of the mountain cliff and raised so that it wouldn't be um, inundated when the dam was filled. But that call involved uh, really hundreds of, of teams of people coming from all over the world to excavate. And so they excavated, um, they were trying to get as much material as they could before the, the, the dam reservoir was filled, but that area was lower Nubia. So most of the stuff that was excavated, um, a lot of the people that came in to excavate, they were not Egyptologists, but they were archeologists. So they came with a different mindset. So these you know, archeologists came looking to see what they could learn from the material in and of itself. And that kind of, uh, brought about that kind of shift about how we start to think about looking at Nubia. So this, this movement toward looking at Nubia uh, on its own terms and not as just a, a society that functioned to serve Egypt, um, you see that shift happening during the 1970s. And so um, now, you know, there's, there's a, a move or a, a, the thinking to just just look at Nubia as its own, you know, having its own history, having its own movement, of course connected to Egypt, but also having its own movement independently of Egypt. And, and part of that too is being able to look at Egypt and Nubia prior to Egypt becoming a state. So this, this is that I, I talked about earlier, that disciplinary divide between African studies and archeology span and Egyptology. So in, in order to fully understand that connection and to look at Egypt, um, look at its roots, you have to look at that period before Egypt forms as a state and look at where people are coming from. And so uh, there's always been this kind of focus to, to make Egypt not a part of Africa. So even looking at it at an early period, there's the, there's the emphasis of looking to the Middle East for influence, but not looking at Africa. But these people are moving, uh, if, you, if you go back far enough in, in history, you have to look at the environmental conditions. Um, you have to look at what's happening in the Sahara. So the Sahara wasn't always a desert. Sahara, there was a period of time when the Sahara, Sahara was green. So when it was green, you had people moving um, from from further south in Africa moving, you know, along the Nile River. The Nile River runs from south to north. So that's the other thing. Uh, you have to take that into consideration. People follow the water. Well, if the water's uh, flowing from south to north, people are going to be moving from south to north because they're following the water. Um, when the Sahara was green, you had people moving back and forth east and west across um, what was considered the Sahara. 
So you have these connections if you look back far enough and you, and you place everything in context. I look at the Nile Valley. I call that time period the Nile Valley continuum because you don't have boundaries. You don't have borders. There is no Egypt. There is no Nubia. It's just people moving across the landscape. They eventually settle and form groups and that become Egypt and Nubia. But prior to that, you just have people that are moving across the landscape and they're in connection with each other. Um, you know, some of them are connecting with each other. Some of them are fighting each other. Uh, but you, I think if you, you have to look at it in that, that context of looking at it without borders and seeing how people are moving, you know, based on uh, the environment and what's going on historically. Nubia be in modern day Sudan or Eritrea or Ethiopia? How far did it go down? So Nubia is considered, so there's upper and lower Nubia. Lower Nubia now is underwater under Lake Nasser. But before the, the dam was built, it was a part of, it became a part of modern day Southern Egypt. And then upper Nubia is Northern modern day Sudan. So Deborah, did, did, uh, did the Western kingdoms like Timbuktu and uh, Kano uh, coexist in time with the Nubians or were they much later? But if they did coexist, was there any interaction between them? That's a good question. And see, the, the, this is the question. These are the questions that are being raised about, again, about the, the difference between African studies and because those questions don't get answered if people are not making the connections between, you know, the disciplines. Um, so some of the Western African, West African kingdoms um, may have been on the rise during the Meroitic period. And I know that there's a young lady at the University of Toronto that is interested in studying the connections and trade routes uh, between Meroe and some of the kingdoms to the West. But yeah, so that, that's research that's, that's you know, up and coming, but it's also research that's being driven by this desire to knock down these boundaries between these disciplines that have kept different parts of Africa se segregated from each other. Nice to know I'm on the cutting edge. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go back to um, Gerald's question because um, he was asking about you know, where, where Nubia was, but uh, there's another issue. So if you go back and if you look at the Greek writings, uh, the Greek writers talk about Ethiopia. So there's several names that Nubia, what we call Nubia is known by. So if you look at the Old Testament in the Bible, uh, references to Cush is Nubia. So they talk about there. There's a story in um, Isaiah that's also found in Second Kings, where King Hezekiah is being threatened by the king of Assyria, and the king, the Assyrian king, is just like decimating everybody in the Levant, you know. And so he's like. Uh, you know, why are you all praying? I, I destroyed everybody else and I'll destroy you too. And so Hezekiah is calling out to anybody that will help Judah against the Assyrian king. And the only person or the only group that helps them are the Egyptians. But 
person that's on the Egyptian throne, well, they, they, they say Taharka, but Taharka was actually the general. His uncle was the king at the time. So under the 25th dynasty, the Kushite dynasty, Egypt goes to rescue Judah. That's part of what gets them in trouble with the Assyrians because after that, the Assyrians keep coming to Egypt trying to, they eventually lose control of Egypt because of the Assyrians. Uh, but yeah, so, so you have Cush in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, this, you know, written in Greek, you have Ethiopia. So they talk about the Ethiopian eunuch that is baptized in, in Acts. Uh, and he is the um, he's the administrator or the treasurer of the Kandake, the queen of e Ethiopia. Uh, so, so when they talk about Ethiopia, the Greek writers talk about Ethiopia, they're also talking about Nubia. The distinction though, is that if you read close enough, especially like Herodotus, you start, the, he talks about things that you understand are going on to the region south of, of Egypt. So you understand, okay, he's talking about the Nubians. But then he starts talking about some fanciful things, you know, like these beings that have their, you know, like 10 feet tall and it's like, okay, what is this all about? So the, when it starts getting into more of the fantastical legend, then you understand we have exceeded Nubia. This is actually um, Ethiopia, what they mean by, these are the unexplored parts of Africa. So, you know, Ethiopia means uh, sun-kissed or sunburnt faces. So, so uh, in the Greek writings, there are two senses of Ethiopia. So in one sense, they're talking about the Nubians and you can kind of understand when they're talking about the kings and queens, but then they start talking about some other things that just sound outrageous. And you're like, okay, so basically you're just going on hearsay. You know, these are stories, legends that people have said about these parts of Africa that nobody's actually explored. So there, that's the other sense of, of Ethiopia. You know, Deborah Verdi's opera Aida talks about the Ethiopian princess being captured by the Egyptians, but really it was a Nubian princess. In other words, they were just, back then they, they were saying Ethiopia. Right, right. Because <laughs> Nubia, uh, Nubia is uh, the, the, the term that we use uh, now to talk about the region that's kind of um, atemporal. So you can talk about the people during the Paleolithic period. You can talk about the people during, uh, you know, different periods when we don't know the name of these particular groups or the name of the uh, particular political system. So we know that there's a Kushite period because we know that there's a kingdom of Kush. There are actually two separate kingdoms of Kush. But then the other time periods, we don't have names because we don't know what the people call themselves. So to kind of, um, you know, to kind of cover that, we just call the area Nubia and the people within it Nubians without trying to find or, or, or because we can't know the names of all these different groups of people that existed within that, that geography. Can I be simplistic about this? Growing, growing up white in a racist uh, society, I tended to think of uh, Egyptians as more or less white and, and Nubians as black. A, a, and ha, has that 
uh, infiltrated all through uh, anthropology to, and archaeology too. Well, I mean, you you didn't think that that's what you were taught. Yeah, that's that's what you were taught. And um, you had mentioned um, Mary Breasted. So uh, uh, James Breasted wrote. Uh, a, he was asked to write a, a history book a history textbook for high school students. Um, it was called Ancient Times. So the first edition of the book, um, you know, he just has, you know, just talks in general about Egypt. When he modifies the book for the second ed edition, he puts in this map and he creates what uh, one writer has called a racial geography. So he, he the map has, you know, parts of Europe and Asia. And then, so he draws a line that goes all the way down and includes Egypt and then swerves back up and then goes towards the Middle East. And in that part, he has the white, great white race. And then under that, he puts the black race. And then to the east of that, he puts the yellow race. So he creates this geography this is a textbook for high school students that basically shows that all the way down through Egypt was white. And so, I mean, he wasn't the first, but this is, this is what, uh, if you're teaching high school students, this is what they're getting, you know, this racial geography. So yeah, so that, that Petrie, basically the early Egyptologists did everything they could to show that the Egyptians were not of any kind of color, that, to make them white. Uh, because if, when they first start excavating in the, the late 1800s, they said, you know, that these people are black or these are a little or shorter brown people. And then, but that could not, these, these black or brown people could not be the people that created the pyramids. They could not be the people that, you know, so, there, there are all these theories then that had, they started bouncing around. So there's this dynastic race. So Petrie starts with that. Like there had to have been a dynastic race that came from outside to conquer. And they're the ones that created Egyptian culture. Early on that there was this, this need to, first of all, to make the Egyptians white. And then second, to remove Egypt from Africa. So it was basically that two-step move. And that removal from Africa is why Egyptology and African studies don't coexist. De Deborah, I always thought all the Egyptians look like Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> don't you wish? <laughs> don't, yeah, don't I wish? <laughs> or are you a Brenner? <laughs> yeah, well, they always had explanations. They would say, like the area in Zimbabwe that showed the. Um, you know, the artifacts that were discovered there, they said that someone must have come in and built those, those structures. And with the sculpture over in West Africa, the Benin uh, sculptures of the faces, they said, well, someone must have come in to show those people and make those um, wonderful realistic sculptures because they couldn't have done it themselves, so. Well, Hegel had written, and, and, and there was someone else before Hegel Hegel is the one that, that most people fall back on. Mm -hmm. He had written that Africa has no history. So he, he was reading, writing about the history of the world. And he said, but, but Africa has no history. And ba basically, I'm bringing Africa up 
to let you know it's on the threshold of history and I'm not gonna mention it again because that's where we leave it in this undeveloped spirit, you know? So that, that, that was the philosophy of world history that Africa had no history. So if there was anything of any importance that was found, it had to be explained away. So tell us a little about the, the about the future in terms of is this information getting disseminated down into the you know elementary schools and and that's where are we at in terms of that? Wow, so that that's a very good question. Uh, we're working with I actually worked with some school teachers uh, in Needham, Massachusetts. Um, a few months ago. So they, they were sixth grade uh, social studies teachers. They are integrating Nubia into their curriculum. Um, so I think that one of the outcomes of this pandemic and all of these webinars and lectures online is that people are getting information that they getting access to information that they never had before. So you have a lot of school teachers that are reaching out asking you know, can we get some resources? So I think that, you know, after, after this pandemic is over, we will hopefully begin to see some of this trickle down into some of the curriculum, but, but teachers are, are asking for it. Um, but as far as programming, you know, there also can be um, more public outreach to schools. Um, and I think that that's something that probably um, the museums will start to look at, you know, as, as, as we start to come out of this pandemic. Because I think that a lot of institutions are beginning to think of things that they never thought of before. And, you know, the, the push for social justice has awakened uh, or brought to the fore, uh, you know, some of the, the issues around how we teach world history, what's included in world history, what do we think about world history, what do we think about Africa, what do we, you know, all these questions have come up. And so I think that, you know, post pandemic, uh, hopefully we'll start to move toward answering some of these questions and instituting some of these changes to see these things, you know, trickle down into the school systems. So, Changing Perceptions of Ancient African History, a Positive Result of the Pandemic. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>